legends, myths, conspiracy theories. They're all theories, yet they hold a vast amount of weight with us still today. Stories we were told around campfires as children or stories that you would tell at sleepovers to scare all the other girls or boys. They all come from somewhere. Is the island of the dolls a real place? Where did an entire squadron of planes disappear to? Who killed Marilyn Monroe? Was it really a suicide or something much bigger? What are the Georgia Guidestones? These are the things that we're going to be diving into together. Go ahead and subscribe so that whenever a new episode drops, you will get notified. And remember, it's all just a theory. This is If I Go Missing, a podcast where we tell the stories of those who have gone missing so that they aren't forgotten. And maybe, just maybe, we can help bring them the justice they deserve. I am your host, Megan. And I'm your co-host, Lynn. Are you ready to dive into another story? Always. Let's do it. Let's go. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Sometimes this podcast contains themes of a sexual nature in relation to the crimes that we talk about. This podcast contains triggers such as violence and or abuse and sometimes contains adult language. Listener discretion is advised. When he got on a plane in Portland, Oregon last night, he was just another passenger who gave his name as D.A. Cooper. But today, after hijacking a Northwest Airlines jet, ransoming the passengers in Seattle, then making a getaway by parachute somewhere between there and Reno, Nevada, the description on one wire service, master criminal. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of If I Go Missing. On Instagram a while back, I asked you guys about some cases to see which ones you wanted to hear about. One of those was the D.B. Cooper case. Almost 70% of you guys were interested in this case. And it is the most infamous missing person slash criminal case to date. According to documents released by the FBI, at 2 p.m. on November 24, 1971, a man by the name of D.B. Cooper purchased a one-way ticket at Portland International Airport for travel from Portland, Oregon to Seattle, Washington. He paid for his ticket on the Northwest Orient Airlines flight number 305 in cash with a $20 bill. The man then boarded the plane carrying no luggage with only a briefcase accompanying him on this flight. And once on board, he made his way to seat 18E. Prior to the plane taxiing on the runway, he had already had a bourbon and 7-Up that he ordered from the stewardess. Not too long after the Boeing 727 plane had been in the air, the stewardess made her rounds for drinks again. When she finally reached seat 18E where D.B. Cooper was seated, he quietly turns and hands her an envelope. Inside the envelope contained a note written in black felt-tip pen on plain white unlined paper and it read miss i have a bomb here and i would like you to sit by me he made for a very polite criminal once he had the attention of the stewardess thanks to his note he then directed the following i want two hundred thousand cash by 5 p.m put it in a knapsack 
when we land, I want a fuel truck ready to refuel. No funny stuff or I'll do the job. The hijacker then proceeded to show the stewardess the contents of the briefcase and stated it was an electrical device and requested that the aircraft's radio be used as little as possible. He then went on to tell the stewardess that the flight suited his time, place, and plans. He very carefully demanded that each and every note either written by him or dictated to the stewardess by him be returned to him and he also used a match cover to convey notes returned to him. After showing the other stewardess on board the hijackers demand notes, they were taken to the cockpit where they were displayed to the captain. The aircraft landed at SeaTac or Seattle-Tacoma International Airport at 5.46 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. At this time, $200,000 in the form of $20 bills weighing in at 19 pounds Two black parachutes and two chest chutes were given to the hijacker in a white canvas bag. The passengers and stewardess were then allowed to disembark from the plane. One stewardess remained on board. She was acting as a courier for the plane's hijacker and captain. After the aircraft departed SeaTac at 7.36 p.m., about five minutes after takeoff, he ordered the stewardess to go to the cockpit. After receiving the money, he instructed the captain to fly the normal course to Reno. He also wanted the captain to fly between 7,000 and 10,000 feet and to keep the flaps at 15 degrees. This would allow the plane to fly at a slower speed. His final instruction was to fly with the rear stairwell open. At 8.11 p.m., it had already turned dark outside, and the plane was at about 10,000 feet. Around this time, the crew experienced a pressure bump or oscillation, and the cabin pressure rate of change gauge also reacted violently, and it was thought at that time that the hijacker might have left the aircraft. And, in fact, B.B. Cooper was gone. The only things he left behind were a handprint, a black tie, and the chest and back chute. Oddly enough, the parachute he chose to take was what is sometimes referred to as an emergency chute. It's a training pack dummied up to look like a good one. It's also said that anyone using this type of chute would not have been able to steer the chute, and anyone using this type would not have a choice in picking their landing spot. I have listened to numerous podcasts on D.B. Cooper, and one of them even theorized that maybe the person using the name D.B. Cooper may have had military training with parachutes and not sport training, meaning that he might not know the difference between the emergency chute and the regular chute. Okay, so he knows all about this plane stuff, and what degrees for the flaps, and what altitude, and I mean, he sounds really, really good. Until we get to the part, part, until we get to the part where dummy don't know which chute to use, you know, 
he's seeming to right now. He seemed pretty doggone smart a while ago. But now all of a sudden, those smarts went shh. As a matter of fact, a lot of people thought that. Everything this man did, though, had to have been planned out so well. Hear me out. The choice of the daily commuter plane was no accident. It followed a path that did go over rural terrain where the land was hilly but not too rough. It was close enough to the freeway to make a getaway once landing, but it was also not near any water or high tension line. Also, the day he chose was no accident either. It was the perfect day. It was a holiday. He felt that with it being a holiday, the airports would be full of cheerful spirit as well as a lot of people. To D.B. Cooper, crowds would have been a very good thing. They would have ensured a lot of confusion. Okay, so he's getting a little credibility back. Old newspapers even claim that Cooper had been planning the hijacking for over a year. He was said to have even done practice runs where he would just hop on a plane and take the normal ride and observe the lay of the land below. The exact type of plane he picked was no accident either. It was a Boeing 727. At this point in aviation history, it was one of the few with an aft door. The aft, or the back door, made way for a back stairwell. Back during this time, the big rolling hallways that connected the planes weren't a thing. So, some planes were equipped with this black stairwell supposedly to help passengers exit or enter the plane. So, even his order for multiple parachutes was done on purpose. Cooper knew at this point, no one was really going to be worried about his security. So, if he ordered one parachute and had them thinking he was exiting the plane solo, they may have just given him a bogus chute. Asking for two chutes gave him an error of mystery. No one knew if he was taking another person out of that plane with him or not. So, to send a bad parachute... When there was possibly another innocent person going out of that plane would basically have been signing that innocent person's death warrant. Cooper knew the government was not going to risk that, or at least he hoped they wouldn't. He even made accommodations for the presence of U.S. air marshals. Apparently, air marshals had been on flights a lot recently, so Cooper decided that if his flight were to have had any air marshals on board, that his plane was just going to take the normal flight and he was just going to sit there. He was just going to let the flight go as planned and try again later. Okay, so other than not knowing parachutes, he really he really did a good study here on this. The, everything about the plane and the, the logistics of the plane and where it was going, what it was flying over, even even preparing for the marshals. I mean, it's really it did pretty good there. Yeah, I mean, so now you know what I'm saying about him being smart. I mean, he knew the lay of the land and was knowledgeable about the air environment and everything. Yeah, um, hey, he's gaining a little credibility here. I mean, you know, he can't know everything, so he messed up the backpacks a little bit. He probably has a reason for that. <laughs> I mean, if he knows all this other stuff, somehow he probably knows something about those parachutes. So, this was the biggest mystery missing person's case in all of the FBI history at this point, And I think it still is to this day, to be quite honest. 
And, you know, as they do with all unknown criminals, they drew up a profile. D.B. Cooper was said to have been well-spoken and a conservative gentleman, probably a Catholic with Mexican or Indian blood, and this is theorized because his physical appearance was that of a white man with an olive skin complexion, and he had a Latin appearance. The FBI summarized that though he drank, he was not an alcoholic, he also smoked Rayleigh filtered tip cigarettes because those were found on board. And they traced back what type of cigarette it was. So, that was one point against him. He was also thought to have either lived in Portland or Seattle areas and had probably flown over them more than once. He appeared to be acting solo. Based on his choices with parachutes and actions, it is thought that he was not an experienced skydiver and most likely got his knowledge and experience of skydiving through military jump training. Due to his mannerisms after receiving the ransom money, it is thought that he was most likely not an experienced criminal. It was also learned that Cooper was familiar with the Tacoma area based on things he said as the plane flew over the city. In addition to this, he was also said to have made a comment about the distance from McCord Air Force Base to the SeaTac Airport being about 20 minutes, which in fact would have been correct. Yeah, he, he, he's got it all together. He does. He really does. Cooper had also stated that he was hijacking the plane because of a grudge. The FBI assumed that he may have had a relative, possibly a son, that was killed in Vietnam, or that he may have had recent finance problems that resulted in a grudge. Cooper also showed extreme knowledge of the airline, as we touched on before. So the FBI notes that he demonstrated considerable knowledge of aircraft industries and flying. So it's also felt that he was employed in the aircraft industry, either civilian or military at one point in time in his life. With this knowledge, FBI agents thought it may be possible that he could be holding a grudge at the airline industry itself. Okay, that makes sense. As well planned out as his plans were, the FBI seemed to disagree. While their profiler stated that Cooper's physical build and his handiness with a parachute shroud line indicated coordination and some physical ability as well as inventiveness. You see, he had asked for the money to be delivered in a knapsack. He received it in a canvas bag instead. He was forced to think on the spot. Cooper got very creative and he took a small pocket knife from his person and made a way to attach the small bag to his body using parachute lines from an unused parachute. While this move showed his creativity, it also showed FBI agents that he was not overly prepared as I had once thought. As a matter of fact, they think that the pocket knife was not even a planned item he brought along. It was just more of something he carried with him in his daily life. But that explained why he chose one parachute over the other. Maybe he needed the, the parachute line for the, for the money sack. Yeah. True. Another thing that was noticed by the agents was that Cooper was very polite. He never swore. He showed a great deal of respect to the stewardess and even tried to tip her with his own money, his own personal money, not the ransom money. Based on the fact that he did not swear but did order an alcoholic drink, they think it's possible that this man is religious, but not Mormon or Baptist due to his drink order. Okay, that makes sense. Because if you think about it, Baptists don't drink, Mormons don't drink. 
Catholics will take wine with their communion. They also came to the conclusion based on the fact that he only had one drink and was in a tense situation that he probably was not an alcoholic because past or present alcoholics in that same situation would have had more than one drink. I think I would have if I'd known. I don't know. I think I would have too. Jumping out of the same alone, I'd probably have to be a little too tipsy there, which would probably take half a drink for me. But point <laughs> being, I would have to do something. Since he also boarded the flight wearing a suit, it was thought that he might be some kind of high-level executive. However, this was then considered unlikely because he carried a cheap briefcase with him and wore a clip-on tie, kind of giving the air of being well-to-do. They also point to the fact that he had a white shirt with a small collar. And at this time in our history, someone with money would have worn something more fashionable. Okay, again, I was born in that time, but um, a suit to suit my eyes. And nobody back then wanted to tie their own ties. That thing's a pain in the neck. Nobody wants to tie their own ties today. I know, but... Alright, so, getting back to the subject. They give any type of physical description other than um, what we've already talked about. Yeah, so, of course, you know, he was a white male thought to be possibly of Indian or Mexican descent. He has short, dark black hair was said to be in his mid-40s. Based on witness statements, he weighed in around 170 and 180 pounds, and he was somewhere between 5 foot 10 and 6 foot in height. He had ear-level sideburns, and he wore a short, dark hair combed back and parted to the left. He may have possibly had brown eyes as well, but no one was sure, because during the latter part of the flight, he put on dark wraparound sunglasses with dark frames, so I guess no one could really get a good look after that. Again, man's thinking a little ahead. The high-flying exploit of the man known as D.B. Cooper infused American pop culture. The parts of his story that were known were dramatic enough to inspire writers, directors, and musicians. But the unanswered questions had to be patched up with guesswork. In 1980, some of Cooper's money actually surfaced. A boy found $5,800 in decomposing $20 bills buried in a bag a few feet from a river. The FBI searched the area again, hoping to find more bills or better yet, a body. And they found nothing. Wow, let's hope for the man's body. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. The longest missing person's case was started the moment he jumped from that plane. And over the years, many people have been thought of as possibly being B.B. Cooper. If you're like me, you like stories about Things that are strange and unusual. That's what got me into true crime. But you can't have a ghost without having true crime. So while I provide you the true crime, my friend over at Mystified Podcast will provide you the ghost stories and all of the strange and unusual details that you crave. So once you finish listening to this episode, head over there right now and give them a listen. You won't regret it. You can't have a ghost without a crime. The ones that were investigated have not panned out, of course. Dwayne Weber actually claimed to be Cooper on his deathbed, and that was ruled out by DNA testing. So sorry, sorry, Dwayne. That fingerprint and sample that was lifted from Cooper's tie in 2001 totally ruled Dwayne out. Poor Dwayne. He tried. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
A man named Kenneth Christensen was named in a recent magazine article, but he didn't match the physical description, but he was a skilled paratrooper. A man named Richard McCoy, who died in 1974, also didn't match the description, and a lot of people really wanted it to be him, but he was at home the day after the hijacking, having Thanksgiving dinner with his family in Utah, so that's kind of an unlikely scenario unless he had help. Okay. So, we've considered some people. Is there anybody else? There's actually a few. A man by the name of John List, Lynn Doyle Cooper. Yes, you heard me correctly, ladies and gentlemen. That is L.D. Cooper. Not D.B. Cooper, but L.D. Cooper. Still a Cooper. Barbara Dayton and Robert Rackstraw. Okay, okay. I got to stop this thing. All right, Lynn Doyle Cooper. Okay, that could be a guy there, a guy's name, Lynn. Barbara, you wouldn't have noticed a man was a woman. Wait for it, sister. She was just just wait. Just wait for it. <laughs> We're going to get there, okay? And also, something else got thrown in there. Although the DNA evidence completely discredited Dwayne Weber's confession, it still was interesting enough that I threw the story in there. All right, let's see that old Dwayne, too. So... We're going to start with John List. John List was an interesting person. He wrote in The Oregonian in 1989, quote, The man John E. List vanished November 9th, 1971, the day authorities believe his mother, wife, and three children were shot to death in the family's home in Westfield. That was just 15 days before Cooper hijacked a Northwest Airlines Boeing 727 at Portland International Airport and parachuted into the dark and sub-zero temperatures over southwestern Washington with 200000 in cash. End quote. Marcy, I, I, if I was D.B. Cooper, I would not be in the association with Mr. John List. Yeah, well... In 1989, a man by the name of Robert P. Clark, who authorities say is really John Emile List, was returned to New Jersey from Richmond, Virginia. He signed the extradition papers as Clark. Although the man known as Clark denies he is List, authorities said fingerprints and a scar proved that Robert P. Clark and John Emile List, or John E. List, are in fact the same person. It appears that List did not disappear after all, but wouldn't you know it, the FBI never officially ruled him out as being that of D.B. Cooper. Do we know anything else about this guy? Yeah, so from listening to other podcasts and things of that nature, I've learned that before his so-called disappearance, he withdrew exactly $200,000 from his mother's bank account, and he had served in the military. But that's all I really know about him. It kind of wasn't much out there. Other, You know, when you Google him, most of what comes up is, you know, family annihilator. Well, yeah, the jerk withdrew $200,000 from his mom's bank account. Not to mention that he shot and killed her, but. That was just wrong. Yeah. He is so, not a good son. Yeah, I mean, when you Google him, D.B. Cooper is like the last thing that's going to come up under his name. For real. We, mm. No, D.B. Cooper does not want to be associated with this guy. Mm-mm. So, um, who else do we have on the list, other than List? So, let me tell you about Dwayne. In 1980, an eight-year-old boy named Brian Ingram was wandering along a riverbank near Seattle. 
where he found a stash of badly burned money. He showed it to his parents who reported it and found out they were holding D.B. Cooper's ransom. It's one of the biggest points against Dwayne Weber, a man who was at the very same spot just four months before Ingram found the money. Weber had told his wife that he wanted to go for a walk along by the river, which gave him a chance to drop off the money. She didn't think much of it until three days before he died when he told her, quote, I am Dan Cooper. Weber's wife went to the library and took out a book on Cooper, only to find out that her husband's handwritten notes were all over the margins. She started putting things together, like her husband's nightmares, during which he would mutter something about leaving fingerprints on the aft stairs. And she kind of came to the conclusion that her husband was D.B. Cooper. But, again, there was that DNA test that eliminated Weber. But then again... Some people say that test wasn't conclusive, so I guess you can technically say he was never officially ruled out either. Hmm. Okay, now my mind's just reeling. Then, we have a man by the name of Lynn Doyle Cooper. Yes, you heard me correctly. L.D. Cooper, as his family called him. (laughs) You see, what happened was, B.B. Cooper didn't really call himself B.B. Cooper. He called himself Dan Cooper. But, a reporter made a mistake, and the nickname D.B. just stuck. You know, I was kind of wondering if that was his name or what. Yeah, so, it was just a nickname that stuck by accident by a reporter. Imagine that. Dan Cooper, though, just might be the key to cracking the case. He is the hero of a French comic book about a Royal Canadian Air Force pilot who's usually shown parachuting on the cover. And he just might be the inspiration behind the caper. If so, that makes Lynn Doyle Cooper a strong suspect. Lynn was obsessed with Dan Cooper and kept one of his comic books thumbtacked on the wall. Lynn's niece, Marla Cooper, is convinced that Lynn and his brother Dewey were behind hijacking. On the day of the hijacking, Marla claims her uncle came home with a bloody shirt and said he'd been in a car accident. When he thought she wasn't listening, though, she heard him tell Dewey, we did it. Our money problems are over. We hijacked an airplane. The FBI tested Lynn's DNA against a sample they had from D.B. Cooper's tie. They didn't get a match, but there's no guarantee that that sample's really even from Cooper. I mean, people were touching the tie back then, mm-hmm. you know? It could have been um, tampered with. No, really, DNA at a crime scene, whatever, tampered with. Ah, It could have very well been. So, for this reason, some people haven't ruled out Lynn Doyle Cooper. D.B. Cooper was unusually knowledgeable about Boeing planes. He picked the safest plane from which to parachute because of the aft stairwell. Mm -hmm. And he corrected the pilots on some of its technical abilities. For a long time, it's believed that he worked on a plane before, but a new discovery suggests that he might even have built it. Cool. A group of researchers analyzed the tie left behind by D.B. Cooper. On the tie, they found pure, unalloyed titanium particles all over it, along with cesium and strontium. In the early 1970s, these particles weren't common except in a Boeing factory. 
The researchers believe that these particles prove that Cooper worked for either Boeing or Tektronics, a company that did outsource work for Boeing. If they're right, they might have some strong evidence against Lynn Doyle Cooper. Lynn's brother, Dewey, worked for Boeing, and he could have easily gotten those particles on his tie. It's possible that the tie worn by Cooper was borrowed from Dewey and that the DNA on it was his too, and that's why it didn't match to Lynn. Oh, yep. Dewey done did it. Well, technically, Dewey built it and Lynn did it, if you want to go with that theory. Okay, we're getting a little closer to a uh, plausible theory. The next person has had their name tossed about a little bit is Barbara Dayton. Okay, yeah. This is what I'm curious about. You can not tell if it's a woman or a man. Come on, pay attention. Could D.B. Cooper have been a woman? Pilots turned authors Pat and Ron Foreman believe so, citing a confession which was later recanted made to them by their friend Barbara Dayton, a World War II veteran who was born Robert Dayton. Oh, snap. Oh, yes. The foreman said Dayton told them bits and pieces of her famous story over a lifelong friendship that began in 1977. Perhaps even more startling than the notion that D.B. Cooper was a woman, the foreman's verified Dayton's claim that she received the first sex change operation in Washington which was performed in 1969. Thus, the foremen say Dayton donned the supreme disguise by reverting to her male persona to become D.B. Cooper. One indisputable fact is that Barbara Dayton was a highly skilled pilot and parachutist, showing a fearlessness that bordered upon recklessness. In addition, she was a proficient machinist and explosive expert. All skills that D.B. Cooper displayed during his hijacking. But still, wouldn't she have looked like a sheep? Not if she was in disguise. I guess when she transferred from he to she, she didn't get heavily endowed. (laughs) I mean, that would be an obvious trait. (laughs) (laughs) You would think think the man would think. Hey, I might as well get some big ones while I'm at it. <laughs> you know? Oh my you god. About it. Um, well, noticeable ones. Because she's still going to look like a man. Sorry, folks. She's still going to look like a man in the face and et cetera, et cetera. Oh, I don't really know how to. I don't know. <laughs> but the foremans did say that Dayton never spent the money and only did the crime to satisfy personal issues relating to her sex change operations. As far as the FBI is concerned, though, they've never commented as far as to confirm or deny if they even investigated Dayton. Yeah, they didn't want to touch that. No, the didn't want to go there. Mm-mm. Oh, no, pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord mercy. Oh, we're so getting railed for this episode. <laughs> I really don't know if I buy into this or not, especially considering the next suspect on our list has over a hundred pieces of circumstantial evidence that point to him being the infamous hijacker. So, who is he? This is a person by the name of Robert Rackstraw. Robert W. Rackstraw was a mysterious military veteran who has been portrayed by some as the infamous airline skyjacker D.B. Cooper. Unfortunately, though, he passed away about a year ago, but his legend still continues. 
Rackstraw began in the National Guard and then moved to the Army Reserve. Then he switched to the regular Army, where in 1969, he joined the famed 1st Cavalry Air Mobile Division in Vietnam. During his seven years of service, Rackstraw climbed the ranks as Private, Corporal, Sergeant, Warrant Officer, Aviator, and First Lieutenant. Does anybody see anything wrong here? No, because I don't know military that well. That's not the proper chain of command. Oh. That's completely different things. I'm going to take a quick little detour, sorry. Break this down. Private, corporal, sergeant. Yes, they can all be under the ranks of an enlisted person in the military. Although, I don't know how they were back then, but these days, Army does not use the term corporal. They use the term specialist. Corporal is reserved for the Marine Corps. Although they do still use it, it's not something that they willingly choose to use. And very rarely is it used. So... I don't know how it was then, but we'll leave that there. But you can't jump from private corporal to sergeant, even if you're even if you're staying within the enlisted ranks. Warrant officer, that's another list of ranks entirely. They have their own section. They are not under the enlisted ranks. Then you have your first lieutenant. That is an officer rank. That is not a warrant officer rank. That is not a enlisted rank. That is an officer rank, somebody that usually holds a college degree. So I'm going to let that set in. In any ways, just know that this is very, very, very just throwing me off from the beginning. But Mr. Rackstraw, when his chopper pilot was off duty, however, former superiors claim he was a rule breaker, con artist, and thief who rode around in a stolen commander's jeep. Hmm. Might have something to do with those ranks he kept doing. Mm-hmm. Lieutenant Colonel Ken Overtuff, retired, was asked if Rackstraw had the skills to pull off the high-flying robbery. And he said he had basic knowledge and experience in parachuting. He appeared crazy enough to do it and had nothing to lose by trying it. And in fact, out of all of the suspects, the Lieutenant Colonel thinks Rackstraw fits the mold best. Rackstraw first came under the FBI's radar in 1978. Rackstraw earned more than 30 criminal titles in his lifetime, mostly in the 1970s, such as check forgery, car theft, vigilante, grifter, identity thief, wife beater, explosive merchant, and violent sociopath. You know, take your pick. While holding the California vet for fake identities and local charges in 1978, Two Stockton detectives decided to submit his name to federal agents because there were so many things that seemed to fit. Three days after the story was published, Rackstraw offered up his own jailhouse interview. The paper wrote he identifies with the spirit of D.B. Cooper, a person he says had challenged the legal system and beat it. The prisoner oddly then switched to the first person, saying, I think I stand for the American people. I really do. It has also been found out that he admitted to the FBI that he was in the Northwest at the time of the skyjacking. That article detail captured the interest of the Los Angeles TV news station. And in a phone call with its staff, Rackstraw shared another tidbit. As a teenager, he had been introduced to parachuting by his favorite Arizona uncle, Ed Cooper. The FBI also found out 
that only five months before the hijacking, Robert Rackstraw had been booted out of the army. Rackstraw was compelled to leave his military career in the seventh year because he had lied about his combat record, his true army rank, and faked attendance at two universities and was, in fact, a high school dropout. <laughs> okay, yeah, there's a reason for him to be kicked out of the military. But to pull the wool over that many people's eyes for so long... Yeah, congrats, dude. You, you, you did hold it out. But that's about all I've got for you. While in the military, though, Rackstraw received parachute training at the U.S. Army Airborne School at Fort Benning, Georgia. In California, he took microwave engineering classes, scuba lessons, and extensive underwater demolition instruction at the Presidio of Monterey. And at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, he attended Special Forces School with the Green Berets, where he learned to fly planes, choppers, and halo jump. So, for those of you that don't know what that means, a halo jump is just an acronym for a high altitude, low open commando drop. And all of this verified the vet had unique skill sets that D.B. Cooper was known for. His photo also has up to nine points of match to the Cooper sketch. So there's this book called The Master Outlaw, and in Chapter 20, a current investigator with South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, John Campbell, was recently asked for his opinion on the case, and he stated, If you compare the sketch to Rackstraw's photo, there are nine points of match in the brown eyes, ears, noses, short mouths, frown lines, chin, brows, odd head shapes, and male pattern baldness. Frankly, it looks like the sketch was traced from his photo. The drawing came from an objective passenger who, like the rest, was not informed of the ongoing bomb plot until he was safely off the jet. This key witness, college sophomore Bill Mitchell, was sitting directly across the aisle from Cooper. There have even been old D.B. Cooper letters and a secret army code that is supposed to tie Rackstraw to the case. Two letter trails with different signatures mailed in the month before and after the 1971 hijacking appear to have been orchestrated by the same author, Robert Rackstraw. The first group of envelopes, eight in all, were written by an alleged Swiss pilot named Norman de Winter, a vacationing grifter that over a dozen witnesses from two Oregon towns and local paper claim have lived among them for months. After these con victims were recently shown a 1979 TV interview with Rackstraw, the resident said his looks and mannerisms fingered him as their Swiss mystery man, a man who happened to have vanished the day before the 1971 jump. The second group of envelopes, six in total this time, held taunting letters from a writer claiming to be the escaped D.B. Cooper. According to FBI memos, excited senior agents and director J. Edgar Hoover himself believed the claim to be true. In early 2018, one of the volunteer investigators, a three-tour NSA codebuster in Vietnam, found Army encryptions hidden in all of the Cooper letters. Joseph P. Russiello is a former two-time U.S. attorney, FBI agent, and retired dean at San Francisco Law School. 
His take on the seven-year hunt was, I have reviewed the new materials and gone back over the original work done by your investigative team. The evidence is clear and convincing that Rackstraw was D.B. Cooper. Rackstraw as the author. Yeah, he he seems the most likely with the most common denominators. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Rackstraw has a strong possibility of being the one. And the thing is, I watched a YouTube video where the man showed how he cracked these codes. And the thing is, they were army codes that they used together. And one of them even spelled out, I am First Lieutenant Robert Rackstraw. Interesting. And it was cracked by using army codes that mm-hmm. their specific group mm-hmm. had used. So this code that Rackstraw put into the evidence that was able to be cracked was actually cracked by a retired Indiana construction worker. And he might be able to crack the case that the FBI never could. But this is just no ordinary construction worker. His name is Rick Sherwood. He served three tours in the U.S. Army during the Vietnam War earning two bronze stars for his code-breaking work, and he served with Rackstraw. Rick Sherwood is quoted as saying, I never, my wildest dream, would have ever thought that I would ever use any kind of code-breaking or anything again. Until? Until Tom Colbert. He was uh, investigating D.B. Cooper. Skyjacking happened in 71, and he said, uh, I, I think I know who did this. Robert Rackstraw, he was one of your pilots. I'm gonna look at the military stuff. So I wrote down everything about the military that Rackstraw was involved in. Vietnam, top secret, 371st, their unit, 11th GS, their company. Using the alphabet code where each letter gets a numerical value. A is one, B is two, and so on. This was what was used on letter five, which broke everything open. In Cooper's letter number five, Sherwood noted at the bottom, seven CCs on top, added up 21. He deciphered that to be ASA, Army Security Agency, their intelligence branch. He'd find 371st, 11th GS. Where our choppers flew out of in Vietnam. And then there's letter number six. Sherwood noted Cooper's and please tell the lackey cops D.B. Cooper is not my real name. Then he used the terminology of lackey. I said, there's something here. I said, that could be his name. And please tell the lackey cops equals 269. Sherwood racked his mind for an equivalent. I'm Lieutenant Robert W. Rackstraw. Also equals 269. Game, set, match. Sherwood's findings were ran by a man named Jack Schaefer, who was a retired FBI agent and behavioral analysis, to see if they had any real substance. You know, if they were just another theory or if this really could be like the meat and potatoes this case needed. So when he looked at it, the FBI agent said, you know, I think there's certainly a strong circumstantial case now, especially the link between the decoded messages and Rackstraw. Observers have said Rackstraw had the training and the motive to pull off the heist. He left the Army just months before the hijacking, and 
FBI agent Edwards tried to reach out to Robert Rackstraw by phone back when he was still alive concerning this matter. But over the phone, Rackstraw declined to answer questions, telling Edwards he would only speak face-to-face. If you're D.B. Cooper, the world would want to know your story. Sure they would. So would the FBI and the secret indictment. An FBI spokeswoman said the agency is no longer actively investigating this case and declined to confirm if Rackstraw was ever a suspect. They will neither confirm nor deny. I love that one. If you can't deny it, you don't have enough means to say he isn't. If you can't confirm it, you don't have enough means to say he is. But you have something holding you in the middle. So I'm going to lean to the sides of we can confirm it because I full on believe it was Robert Rackstraw. Signs definitely point in that direction. Who knows for real, but that's my uneducated third party outsider guess. Yeah, there, there's a lot going on there that indicates he, he could probably be in. I lean towards him or um, L.D. Cooper. Yeah. Just because of the plain knowledge that they mm-hmm. had. I don't know. I, I bounce back and forth between the two of those, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, I think Barbara's kind of ruled out. Yeah. Well, she recanted her theory once she, um, I think she found out there was some time that she could serve in prison for, you know, being a terrorist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes sense. Not only that, she did it for attention. Or she said she did it for attention, rather. Mm-hmm. Rolled her out. Yeah, so I, th- I think our two, although it's never mm-hmm. going to be solved, no. but I think our two strongest leads are going to be either Rackstraw or L.D. Cooper. And we will never know. But if you guys have a theory, feel free to hit us up on Instagram at if I go missing podcast, because I'd love to hear your theories. Because obviously I'm out of my own. Definitely. But that is the story of the infamous 1971 plane hijacking of D.B. Cooper. Thank you for listening to another episode of If I Go Missing. I'm your host, Megan, and I put a lot of thought and hard work into these episodes. I write, edit, and produce them all myself. And it means a lot to me that you guys take the time to listen. If you would like to follow us on social media, our Instagram is at If I Go Missing Podcast. Then we also have our Twitter, and that one is at Megan Noel Pod. If you want to reach out and suggest a case, you can do that on Instagram or Twitter by sending us a DM. We also have a Facebook page called Megan Noel Podcast, and we also have discussion groups for the podcast. And the name of the discussion group is If I Go Missing, a podcast.